0: So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Today, we're talking about perimenopause, burnout, and alcohol, and how burnout and perimenopause interact for women in midlife, the connection with increased drinking in midlife, and how alcohol can make it all so much harder. My guest today is Wendy McCallum. She's a burnout and alcohol coach and a wellness expert, and the host of the Bite Sized Balance podcast. Wendy teaches busy professionals who are nearing burnout and often use alcohol to cope how to reclaim their time for themselves, how to reduce stress, build healthier habits, and increase their daily joy. No stranger to burnout, Wendy spent over 12 years working as a lawyer then partner in Calgary. As a busy litigator and a mom of two young children, she struggled to find her work-life balance. And in 2008, she left law to create a life she didn't need to escape from. Alcohol-free since January, 2018. Wendy is also a senior certified naked mind alcohol coach. And Wendy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I'm happy to be here too, because in such a timely way, which always seems to happen just before we got on this call, I had a call with a client who is a primary care doctor with three kids who sees patients in a community health center for 12 hours straight on Mondays, and then has to stay up till 1030 at night to finish her notes and is totally on burnout and is 40 days in to sobriety. And all we were talking about is the fact that it's unsustainable. She's been trying to reduce overwhelm and, you know, get more efficient at work for 15 years and that something's got to give, right? It's a reason that you drink to tolerate your life, even if every aspect of it is good and something you care about.
1: Yeah, that's such an important part. I'm so glad you raised that right at the beginning, Casey, because one of the things that I like to remind people of is that it's totally possible to burn out doing something you love. You know, we often just assume that it happens for women who are doing something that isn't fulfilling them and and doesn't light them up. But it can it can absolutely happen when you're doing something that you love, whether that's a career that you love or it's taking care of other people. And I think it's really important to stress that because I think oftentimes women think they can't possibly be in burnout because, you know, their life, you know, seemingly looks pretty great and they're actually enjoying a lot of the parts of
0: it. Yeah. And yet you know, she was saying, why can't I cope? And other people seem to deal and shouldn't I be happier? And, um, you know, everything is important, nothing can drop. And, um, you know, that's something, you know, we always talk about. In coaching, I've mentioned it on the podcast that that someone said to me, who I interviewed, I wish I remembered who, I need to look it up, but that like, when you stop drinking, there are two types of problems. There are the aftermath problems, right? That you're trying to eliminate the hangovers and fuzzy memories and self-loathing and guilt and worry. And then there are the underlying problems, which is what made drinking quote unquote work for you in the first place. And overwhelm is such a big trigger. And it's something that kind of has to be addressed if you want to, like you said, build a life you don't need to escape from.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'd be curious to know whether this client's noticed that any of that overwhelm is reduced as a result of taking alcohol out. So I often hear that from clients and oftentimes alcohol takes like this layer away that was there, but And people expect it to solve all the problems, right? But when it comes to burnout, usually there are some really deep underlying circumstances that have been there for a long time. And it's really complicated puzzles. So it's often the first piece. Um, And as I think you've, I'm sure you've talked about on this podcast, and I talk about this all the time, this idea that, you know, taking alcohol away doesn't solve all of our problems. It just makes it easier for us to see the ones that are still there. and. And for a lot of women, that is, um, you know, that bring, brings into clarity, just the, the number of stressors in their lives and the amount of obligations they have on their plate. And when alcohol doesn't solve it, it's a really clear sign that something does have to give. And maybe it is time to actually start looking at some of these um, some of these underlying causes for the stress. Yeah, I
0: completely agree. And, you know, I was frustrated when I stopped drinking, you know, when I stopped drinking, so much got better, right? The the beating myself up by my, how I felt physically, how anxious I felt at the end of the day, feeling like I was hiding something all the time and spending all that time thinking about drinking. All of that was better. And then At, you know, and then you go through early sobriety, which is by definition difficult, and you have to sort of treat yourself with kid gloves because it's a very hard thing to do. But when I hit about four months, I had sort of this full anxiety panic attack related to a whole bunch of things at work. Um, And I was really upset because I was, um, upset that I wasn't fixed. Like I gave up this huge thing in my life. I did this really hard thing. Why is this still here? And exactly like you said, it didn't solve everything. It solved a lot of those sort of, um, you know, problems that happen after drinking the aftermath problems, but there were these underlying problems, which it didn't fix, but it finally gave me the clarity to be able to deal with them for the first time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always say it's, you know, you have two ways of looking at it. You can see it as like frustrating and unfair that there's another problem that's presented itself after you've dealt with what you thought was like the biggest problem of all, or you can see it as a gift and an opportunity really to grow more, you know, and to improve your life more. So um, for me, one of the things I realized after I stopped drinking is that I because I, it, I was really struggling with why I was drinking. Like I could not figure it out. I had everything, you know, everything else kind of um, on paper in place. I was, um, you know, happily married with the kids that I'd always wanted. And, you know, I I really didn't want for anything. So it made no sense to me why I was drinking. And it wasn't until I stopped drinking that I realized that I was, I was trying to escape not because of it was less about what was already there in my life and more about what was missing. Um, and, and that sometimes is also, is also a contributing factor to burnout is this feeling, you know, where you're, you're doing all the things for everybody else, but you're not doing anything for yourself. So it's, it is really frustrating when it happens, but it happens all the time that we remove alcohol and we realize, Oh shoot, it didn't actually fix all of my other problems.
0: Yeah. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, To get 25% off your first order with the promo code Hello and get ready to sleep well. And for you, what was missing?
1: Well, it was that's such a good question. I mean, I'm four and a half years out now from alcohol and I'm still figuring it out. It was a process, and I think it's a process for most women. Um, the first thing that was obviously missing for me that I started changing was the nature of my coaching practice so i had been coaching for already probably seven or eight years by the time i became alcohol free not in the in the sphere of alcohol um, but just generally around burnout and uh I realized that I what I was doing wasn't really fulfilling and, and satisfying me. So I worked to kind of reorganize my business and narrow my niche and really focus in on what I wanted to do. And that's when I went back and got certified with this Naked Mind as an alcohol coach. So that was a piece of it for me. I also realized that I had, well, I had happily put my business aside for the 15 years or so when my kids really needed me and I was sort of working part-time as a coach and that was that was fine. Um, my kids had reached an age where they really didn't need me anymore. I had a lot of free time on my plate and I had done nothing to fill that time with business. And I was also somewhat resentful of the fact that my husband during that same time period had built this booming successful company and I hadn't done that. So um, so that was a piece of it too, was just bu- building and growing my company and really um, saying out loud that I had goals around um, around. Um, what it would look like to be successful as a business person. So that was a piece of it. The other thing that that I realized was missing was um, female friendships. <laughs> so um, I had uh, lots and lots of friends when my kids were little, mostly my kids' friends' parents. And as my children got older and they started driving themselves places, and I wasn't invited anymore to you know watch practices and games and things like that. Um, I just I just felt like that social network had started to kind of fall apart. And it was also just coincidentally at the same time as COVID when everybody was sort of separating and isolating. So, um, working on making new friends was another piece of it for me, which was very awkward (laughs) at the age of 50, but, uh, incredibly rewarding. And then for me, for sure, the last piece was a recognition that I had not been serving a really important piece of who I was, which was the creative part of myself. And uh, that one took the longest to figure out. And it took me the longest amount of time to figure out what the thing was exactly that I wanted to be doing. I tried every craft out there, including felting. I always say I felted this beautiful red lobster with Bobble eyes, and it did nothing to fill the gaping hole in my soul. But I tried. I tried everything, Casey. I tried like needle pointing, and oh my gosh, like painting. Um, And then I just um, serendipitously, uh, a a friend of mine uh, sent me a note to let me know that Ann Dowsett Johnston, who's the author of Drink, was running a writing class and was looking for joiners. And I thought, oh my gosh, I I'm not a writer. I don't like to write, Um, but I also knew I needed to keep trying to find things to fill my time. My kids are going to university next year, so I was trying to plan for that. Um, and I said, oh, what the hell? And I joined this joined this um, writing class. And uh, it was very awkward at first, but it became really apparent to me early on that I had never stopped being a writer. I was a writer when I was a kid. I got derailed a little bit by my law career where I wrote all the time, but it was very boring what I was writing about. Um, And so I just got back into that and that's just become, um, oh, it's just my joy now. I do it all the time and I work privately with Anne and I've got a project on the go. Super fun. yeah. I am so glad I asked that question
0: because you said about eight things that I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But um, so first question how was the class? Because I saw, I, I interviewed Anne and I saw when she released that class and,
1: and was just curious. So I loved it. I went on to do, so the first class she does is called writing, writing Your Recovery, I think. And then she has a Writing Your Discovery. I'm in like my second iteration of Writing Your Discovery. I also have a small um, writer's group of writers from that workshop that we, we meet on the alternate weeks and I work with her privately. Um, Are you writing the so book? It, Yes, I well, I've never said that out loud. I can't believe you just got me to admit that, Casey. Um, I am writing something. (laughs) I'm writing something, whether it becomes a book or not, uh, like I'm, I'm, is yet, is yet to be seen. But I'm definitely writing and I'm writing a lot about exactly what we're talking about today, actually. So the project that I'm working on is really all about the intersection between midlife and burnout for women and um you know how we naturally many of us naturally get to this place where we are going through the you know perimenopause which is really the 7 to 10 years before we enter full menopause and and i think it's just a natural confluence of circumstances for us where we're just at the you know at the end of the period where we have been throwing ourselves at work we've been throwing ourselves at taking care of kids um and that has Exha- led to a complete exhaustion. And at the same time, our hormones are shifting. So, you know, we're down, um, we're we're kind of um we call it like a hormone soup that we're in during perimenopause where everything's all over the map and we're having we're struggling with all kinds of feelings and symptoms. And it's hard to discern what's related to perimenopause, what's related to burnout and overwhelm. And uh and also like I like I said earlier, I think for a lot of women it's also a time where they start to realize, oh my gosh, something's actually missing here. So it's not even so much like I have way too much on my plate. It's that the things that I need aren't present. And that can lead to this real feeling of, for me, I felt a little bit lost. I wasn't entirely sure who I was if I wasn't a mother, um, as my kids got to that stage where they didn't need me anymore.
0: Yeah. Okay. The other thing that cracked me up, do you know, Christy Coulter?
1: Yes. Well, not, I don't know her, but I've read, I've read her. Yes.
0: So uh, she wrote nothing good can come from this. She wrote the essay on that, that went viral. She actually lives in Seattle and we're friends. And I wrote her when I was like 96 days sober or something like a totally cold email and was like, I live in Seattle and you work at Amazon and I've been in tech and I'm quitting drinking. And I heard you on this podcast and I just wanted to tell you how nice it is to know you're out there too. And she wrote me back and it was amazing. But the reason I was laughing was you mentioned felting, which is not something that typically comes up in podcasts. And one of the first essays that. I read from her was called the Otter of Sobriety. And I will put it in the links to the show notes because it's like my favorite. But she was writing about how, you know, in Seattle, she was walking back from this store happened to be like a sex store, Babeland, Capitol Hill, Seattle. And she writes how I think it was for an interview or something, but does not matter. We are not. Um, that's fabulous. No. Um, but she said, I was walking back to my car when I spotted the otter I thought might get me sober. He was in the window of a craft shop next door waiting to be made from bits of brown and orange wool and a barbed needle. Felting it was called. It had never occurred to me that felt was something people made. I assume it just sprang out ready to rock, but I start stared at the otter contemplating all the things i could learn about in the world if i ever got my head right you know and then she said like i won't read it all but she had a hopeful shamed relationship with crafting stores saw them you know as all this thing i would drop lots of cash on yarn and scarves i planned to donate to homeless shelters etc her crafting plans were large scale and philanthropic my crafting plans were always large scale partly to compensate for the world putting up with me, but also because I needed a project. So she talked about, you know, I had not yet tried an otter. Um, She had tried all these things to stop drinking and, you know, she still wanted to have a glass of Chardonnay that would become more. Um, But basically she saw it in a closet And she took it downstairs and showed her husband after she quit and said, I found the otter of sobriety. And, (laughs) you know, um, basically, you know, she said, you know, just looking at him makes me feel exhausted. And she said to her husband, I asked a lot of this otter. And he said, you did just the idea that like. I tried all the things I tried, you know, 530 AM classes and morning Pilates and running a 10 K and going to therapy and not talking about my drinking and yeah. switching from red wine to beer. Cause I didn't like it and all the rules, you know, like the otter of sobriety, this felting, this is yeah. going to make me stop drinking.
1: Yeah, it's so funny, and I've actually read that essay as soon as you said that. Oh I, gosh, I read I that. I remember that, but it's so it was so good, it and that's so kind of I I never made that connection back to my felted lobster. But I will say, we were just cleaning our house out because it's on the market. We're selling my kid's childhood home, which is in itself is like a crushing amount of stress for me right now. Um, but we found my husband was cleaning out the cupboard, and he said, "What is this big piece of foam for?" <laughs> Oh my god. And I said don't throw that out. That's for felting. Maybe I'll go back to felting someday. That's my lobster. <laughs> That's my lobster. Um but no that you know I think you have to try all of these things and for me it was a process and um I ended up in this writing course and now I work with Anne privately and it's um it's just changed everything and I f- I feel like it's filled in a gap. And it I always say to my clients, it's like speed dating. You know, you have to go out and try all of the things. And some of them you're going to be able to reject in a minute. Um, and some of them you might need to spend a little more time on, like maybe felt a lobster, but you'll eventually find the thing that's the right fit for you. And um, and I think that's a big piece of what's happening for us in midlife, too, is just filling in the, you know, the holes that are left behind from the the things that filled our lives for so long that are just no longer there by virtue of the fact that our kids are older, our careers are more established for a lot of us, we've kind of reached that pinnacle. Um, And it feels like, okay, I got all of these things, but it didn't quite fill me up. So what else do I need? Right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh.
0: Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head-on And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media. But the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com. Dot com with promo code hello, that's happy m a m m o t h.com and use promo code hello for 15% off your first order. Yeah. Well, so let's talk all about it. Weirdly, I think that actually f- filled in. But let's talk about burnout and perimenopause, right? And how that intersects for women in midlife.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that it naturally intersects in terms of like the timeline, because again, but many women are moving into perimenopause in their early forties, early to late forties. That's really when we're in perimenopause for most of us, it can start earlier than that, but you know, and that's also the time for many women when our kids are getting to a place where they don't need us as much. Um, and so we are at the end of like the heavy nurturing Right. And we have spent our 30s, if you're anything like me, spent your 30s just taking care of everybody else. And also, if you are a working, if a working parent, then you're also probably have been nurturing a career on the side or, you know, in, in um, parallel with that. And all of that involves a ton of work. And stress. So by the time we get to our 40s, and we're just in, you know, just kind of moving into that perimenopause phase hormonally, we are also very often exhausted, like we're just at the end of our rope. Um, And, and so I think that's, that's how those two things intersect. Uh, in terms of burnout specifically and the hormonal shifts that are going on, that's really fascinating to me because I learned in the last year or so I've, been, I've had on my podcast, I've had a regular guest who's a naturopathic doctor who kind of specializes in this area for women. Um, and she's been explaining all kinds of things to me and my listeners about perimenopause and stress. And one of the things that happens, um, when we're in perimenopause is that obviously our body is trying, our, our hormones are over time. They're slowly depleting, right? So in perimenopause, they're all over the maps. So we've got like highs and lows, and it's kind of wild. Then as we move closer to menopause, our hormones start to sort of, um, just decrease slowly until they sort of like, we call it flatlining (laughs) sort of level out. Right. And there's actually take it from someone who's on the other side of that. I'm actually through full menopause. Now on the other side of it, it's actually much calmer. It feels much more manageable on the other side, but perimenopause can feel really crazy because of how all the hormones are going. One of the things though, that's happening. That's really fascinating is that your body is obviously trying to make enough of these hormones to keep you afloat, but it's having to compete. Um, with if you are under stress and your body's also trying to create stress hormones, cortisol in particular is one of the main stress hormones. Your your body is um, there's a competition going on for the primary ingredient um, that we need to make both cortisol and progesterone. So those two, both of those hormones, one is a stress hormone, one is a reproductive hormone. They're both using the same primary ingredient. So when we're stressed out in perimenopause, our body is. Looking for as much it's called pregnenolone. Our body's looking for that to make cortisol and uh, also progesterone. But the thing is, is that our body's always going to prioritize our short-term survival over our long-term survival. So when we're really, really stressed out, our body is going to go to make cortisol over progesterone. Hmm. Which means the more stressed out, exhausted, and burnt out we are, and which really, I mean, burnout is really just elevated chronic stress that goes unmitigated. That's really what what that is. So the more of that that's happening. The less progesterone our body is able to make because the more cortisol it's having to make. So, what we end up with is exacerbated symptoms of perimenopause sometimes as a result of our body trying to manage burnout at the same time. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. It's a layperson's example. I'm not a doctor or health professional, but this is my understanding of it. And I think it's really fascinating because so many women find themselves there and feel like they're going bananas, right? Like I, what is going on? I'm having all of these things. I can't manage any of this. My mood's all over the place. My anxiety's through the roof. Um, and a lot of that is connected to perimenopause and what's going on the underlying hormonal situation. Um, but then of course the stress and overwhelm and burnout is just contributing to all of that and making it so much worse.
0: Yeah. And what age do women typically go through perimenopause? Well,
1: Okay. So let's work it backwards. So the average age of full menopause, which is where you have gone for an entire year without a period is 52. That's my understanding. And perimenopause normally happens seven to 10 years before full menopause. So I guess the average age of perimenopause would be, you know, 42 to 45. It's where it starts. Does that make sense? I think I've got that math, right? So it's usually in like the, in your mid forties, you're most women, I think are in perimenopause in their mid by their mid forties, but some women go into perimenopause in their late thirties too. So it's really a, you know, for me, I, I was in full menopause at 49. Um, so it really is a, it's a individual thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm
0: turning 47 in August and I'm sort of trying to figure out, If if I'm hitting that yet or not, Uh, I'd say you're probably there. I know. I'm just not, um, not totally aware of it. And half of um, my podcasts are me learning about subjects that, that just pique my curiosity or having interesting conversations. So this was one that I was like, all right, I need to learn about this.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually really fascinating. And the reason why I'm so passionate about talking about it and just opening up the conversation is that we don't talk about it. And so you know, we're going through these things and it feels like we're all alone. And it did for me, it did feel like I was kind of losing my mind in my mid 40s. And of course, for me, the other factor that was just exacerbating all of this is that I was drinking. So I quit drinking when I was 46. And that was an incredibly positive step when it came to also managing the, all of this stuff that was going on that I didn't know was really attributed to, could be attributed to kind of this burnout and perimenopause thing. Um, it made a huge difference for me to remove alcohol um, at that point, because it was making everything so much worse.
0: Yes. And I have to tell you, after I knew we were going to do this episode, I follow M and friends um, who makes those incredible cards um, on um. Instagram. And they posted one of the cards that uh, was on perimenopause. And I have to read it to you because I just took a screenshot. It was so amazing. It said, perimenopause, it's like puberty, except nobody knows when it will start or end. We don't talk about it. They don't make cute movies about menopause. And when it begins, you're old enough to worry that you may be dying. Clearly, it's up to us to to celebrate surviving this shit. So I got you this
1: card really it's for both of us. That's perfect. Right. That's exactly what's happening. And you know, it's, it's, um, and some women, some women kind of sail through perimenopause and they don't have a lot of symptoms and that's amazing. I'm, I, I wish I was one of those women. I wasn't. Um, and I had, I did have a lot of, of symptoms and then I am somebody who kind of, dro- I always say I dropped off the cliff with my hormones. I went into menopause very, very quickly. It was very, uh, dramatic and there were some very severe symptoms associated with it, but it's different for everyone. But I do think if we're not talking about it, then we're just likely to assume that what's going on with us is, you know, our own fault or something that we have, you know, maybe a little more control over than we do. I know that for me, one of the things Casey, that was just like, it was such a relief when I realized this might be perimenopause is, is that in my forties, I started having these moments that I now call meno rage, where I would just lose my mind. And it was like an out of body experience. You know, I could kind of, wa- I was watching myself do it, but I couldn't stop. And, you know, I'd be yelling at a kid or my husband or something. And it would just be the, the reaction would be completely out of proportion to whatever the, you know, the trigger was. Um, and now I know that that can be part of perimenopause for women. So that was a huge relief to understand that. And also, you know, we know that the other kind of intersection between burnout and, and perimenopause is that um, anxiety can increase during perimenopause um, for women and alcohol drinking alcohol causes our body to produce cortisol, which is, of course, again, that stress hormone that is part of the, the anxious response. So, you know, excess stress combined with perimenopause can lead to really heightened anxiety for women sometimes as well. So um there's so many ways these things are connected and we are just not talking about it at all yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. and so all of that contributes to increased drinking in midlife right exactly. even for those of us who were big drinkers
1: throughout our lives exactly and i mean i was drinking to manage like in part the fact that i felt horrible that i kept losing my temper at people and you know so it's just a vicious cycle. It really was for me in terms of, um, the symptoms of perimenopause being exacerbated by the alcohol, but then using the alcohol as a way to kind of, you know, put a soothing balm on, you know, the stress and the burnout and the symptoms of perimenopause. So, yeah.
0: And a lot of times I found I drank because I felt those negative emotions and, you know, didn't want to express them or felt bad for having them and then drank to push them down. And then of course, once you're drinking, they all come out anyway. And in the
1: morning you blame yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes, it just makes it all that much worse that I, I, I was very, um, so I quit drinking when I was still in perimenopause and I remember being gobsmacked. And I don't know why this was so surprising because it should have just been obvious to me, but I realized after a couple of weeks of being alcohol-free that I hadn't had one middle of the night anxiety fueled insomnia session. Right. And I think I had been attributing that to perimenopause because of course, another symptom of, um, you know, hormones in flux for women can be problems with sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really difficult to separate these things out. And And that's why I'm always advocating if you're someone in perimenopause and you're, you're, you know, you're drinking, uh, you're still drinking and you're struggling with a lot of symptoms that are affecting your quality of life. Just do an experiment around alcohol, because maybe taking the alcohol out will, will actually really improve your sleep and really have an impact in terms of your ability to manage stress and anxiety. And, you know, if you're having another, one of the common symptoms is hot flashes or, um, night sweats, night sweats were my. Achilles heel. They almost brought me down. I was having some nights, like 15 full night sweats, like Mm -hmm. so gross, Casey, so sweaty. And I I'm totally always going to talk about it because I want women to know that this is normal and it happens. Um, so for me, those night sweats, you know, what I didn't realize is that alcohol acts, especially my poison of choice, which was red wine. Um, acts as a, it can act as a vasodilator and make all of that, that much worse. It's um, a trigger for, um, you know, a, an inability to regulate our body temperature. Um, and then there are histamines in red wine that can make that even worse. So I was basically just, you know, dumping fuel on that fire at night. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that. Um, you know, it's so-
0: interesting. You're talking about the fact that the symptoms of perimenopause mimic the symptoms sometimes of the impact of alcohol. And I also did an interview um, on burnout with Kate Donovan, who who works in that field on the signs and symptoms of it. And she talked about how the physical and emotional symptoms of burnout can mimic those of hangovers and alcohol withdrawal as well and can be really hard to... Distinguish. So also by removing alcohol, you know, we talked about how it doesn't solve all the problems, but it allows you to see them clearly and gives you the capacity to deal with them. And it's also a process of, you know, taking away one variable that you can control to determine, you know, whether headaches, neck tension, sleep issues, physical and emotional exhaustion, cynicism, detachment, purposelessness, is that the alcohol is that burnout is that perimenopause symptoms you know what is it
1: yeah absolutely and that's exactly what i'm talking about it's like which pieces of this puzzle do i have control over and how can i you know actually get into the process of elimination here and try to figure it out so that i can get at the root cause maybe and and give myself what i need i will say that um i i was a few years alcohol-free by the time I went into full menopause and kind of fell off that cliff that I was talking about. And this is when I started having these like 15 night sweats a night. And like, it was crazy. I hardly slept for about four months. And what I was so grateful for during that time was that I knew that it had to be hormones. I knew it wasn't anything else because I had dealt with the burnout and stress and I had created a pretty calm life for myself. And I had lots of like, I call them sort of foundation tools in place that for resilience that I knew were helping me manage and mitigate stress. Um, and there was no alcohol anymore. So it was so clear to me that this had to be a hormonal, a hormonal imbalance. Yeah. Um, and the other little piece that we didn't talk about, I just want I just thought of it is that we also know that um, excessive drinking can also cause our bodies to produce estrogen. So it can in itself contribute to. Uh, It can just mess up the natural balance, and um, you know, and that's an important thing to keep in mind too. Because it's, uh, as I said, in perimenopause, my understanding is it's less of a like slow, steady decline of hormones, which is kind of what I thought was happening. But my naturopathic buddy tells me that that's not actually what's happening. It's more this like wild ride where sometimes estrogen's up and progesterone's low, and they're all over the place. And I also might have been, um, it's been explained to me that really what matters in terms of how you feel is what the balance is between your progesterone and your estrogen and not the, the levels of it. It's more the ratio that's important. So again, if, if alcohol is a contributing factor to throwing that ratio off, we'll take it, take it out for a while and see whether that makes a difference. Cause it may, it may actually help you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. And so In terms of the work you do in being an alcohol-free coach and working with women to remove alcohol, tell us about your approach. Because obviously, we've talked before. I'm a coach, too. I think our work aligns really well in our approaches, which is why I love what you do. But I know also that each
1: one of us is different. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm a naked, naked, naked mind certified coach and I use that. That's how I ended up becoming alcohol-free was using Annie Grace's, um, book and, um, approach and I loved it and it really resonated with me and worked well with me. So that's, uh, as soon as I got to a place where I felt like, I'd made alcohol small and irrelevant. I knew that I wanted to be able to offer that to the women that I was already working with, because of course, for years I was coaching around burnout and it's not like the alcohol problem wasn't there, Casey. It's just that I felt totally like disingenuine, even addressing it because I was still drinking and it was a problem for me. So I just sort of avoided that elephant in the room, you know, and maybe touched on it, but I wasn't, I certainly didn't feel like I was qualified or in a, appropriate position to actually try to give women any guidance around it. So adding that, um, to my coaching kind of toolkit was really amazing. And the approach that I take is really, um, it's really like looking at, it's a holistic approach. I've always approached things. And I mean, holistic in the true sense of the word, like what's actually going on in your real life here. I'm, I'm always, I'm always, you know, in the beginning, working on helping women figure out how to let go of alcohol. Um, but at the same time I am always on my radar is what are the underlying root causes here that are actually contributing to this need to drink. And so trying to identify not only, you know, the, the obvious reasons why we drink, but the, the real underlying root causes that I know from my own experience and from an experience, all the experience I have coaching are still going to be there once alcohol's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can start working on some of those at the same time. That's great. Cause then they have a much greater chance. They get um, closer and closer to freedom from alcohol of, um, you know, staying free from it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so what are the first steps that someone should take if they, Are listening to this podcast, they're nodding their head. They're like, wow, I think I'm both burnt out and going through perimenopause and I drink too much. What do I do?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I would say you're so not alone in that. It's, I just want you to know that um, it is so, so, so common and it's exactly where I was five or six years ago. Um, And I would say the first step is the awareness that you're feeling right now. And that's actually something to celebrate as crummy as it feels to think, ah, oh, this is me. Um, you're, you can't make any change, um, until you have that awareness. So try to celebrate that. And then, um, and then I would say, uh, you know, we always talk about identifying your one big domino. And so when we're dealing with like burnout, menopause and alcohol, it's a good idea to actually figure out which one you want to start with, because, If you try to tackle all of those things at once, it's probably going to feel really overwhelming. So what's the one big thing that if you were able to change it might make everything else in your life easier? Start with that. For a lot of the women that I work with, it is alcohol. Um, Again, because it is just, as we were talking about earlier, it's having this trickle down effect in all of these areas probably, and just making everything that much worse. So we often start with alcohol, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we start with burnout sometimes we start with the stress side of things. If they're very, very unhappy and overwhelmed in their life, then we might start there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's about identifying like the place to start first. And then of course, because I'm an alcohol and a burnout coach, I, I do all the things and we kind of figure out a roadmap that's gonna work, hopefully work best for them. I think it's really important to not assume that there's one way to do this because there isn't. There are so many different paths to recovery from burnout, recovery from alcohol and for moving through perimenopause, moving through this transition into menopause. So don't get too caught up in, um, you know, all the advice out there on how, how to do this, right. My guess is you already know (laughs) you have a pretty good knowing as to what needs to give. Um, and you may not know what you need more of, but again, that is a process of, um, experimentation. And I'm huge on the alcohol, uh, the, the idea of an experiment around alcohol, but also in all areas of your life. Treat everything as an experiment. Just um, and try your best to uh, not fall into that trap that I think we do a lot of the time where we just assume that we already know how this thing is going to go. Because the truth is you don't know how it's going to go. You've never been there before. And for me, this was the thing that kept me stuck in drinking for so long is that I just assumed it was going to suck to not drink. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, I just kept drinking. I was just hell bent on figuring out how to keep it in my life because I could not imagine living without it. And that was largely because of a whole bunch of assumptions I was making that were based on absolutely no actual evidence. Um, The only evidence I had was evidence of what it was like to be a drinker. I had no evidence as to what it was like to be a non-drinker. And so- you know, treating that as an experiment, but also the re- all the rest of it too, around the burnout and the stress. But also as we were talking about, like the crafting, the creativity, like you have to try all of the things. And every time you try something, you're learning something. And it, if it doesn't work, then that doesn't mean you failed. It just means you've got some more information and you're able to kind of tweak or adjust your course towards what is going to work better for you.
0: Yeah, I love that you said that because I know that whenever we're thinking about changing our lives, and I'm saying this for me too, we all have all these objections, right? And some of them are internal, some of them are external, you know, my job, my mortgage, my kids, um, I've gone to grad school, I can't, my boss won't let me scale back. Um, You know, both for burnout and for drinking. I mean, so many of us love Drinking, or it's a huge part of our life or our social life, or we have a ton of fears around what will be like what our life will be like, without drinking. And so what, in your experience, obviously, when women reach out to you, they know they want to make a change. They are at the point where they know that they need support, or you know that something's got to give. But what are the big objections that you hear from women when you are working with them to go from this isn't working in my life to it's time to make actual changes? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do. Around uh, can we talk about burnout? That around burnout? Yeah, let's these. do let's do all yeah. of it. Yeah. So I think around burnout, the most common thing I hear is that I can't stop. So if I stop. And so then I always ask, well, what will happen? What do you think will happen? And the answer is usually kind of catastrophic. It's usually, um, something like, like this is all going to fall apart. And I remember feeling that way. I remember feeling like if I just, if I stopped, I'd never start again, it would just be the end for me. Um, and so a lot of this is where that experimentation piece comes in. A lot of this around stress and burnout is like, all right, start small. Let's start small. Let's just say no to one thing or not do something and see if the sky falls. Let's yeah. just practice saying no in a place where it feels less risky and see what the actual consequences are from that. Do you feel better as a result of not having taken on that additional thing? Is it as hard as you thought to say no? Does the person disown you and never speak to you again because you said you couldn't help them with this thing? I mean, this all sounds I'm like I'm making fun of it. I'm not. I was in that place where I felt like everybody relied on me for everything I needed to to prove to myself that that wasn't the case. And that involved an experiment for me as well. Just like slowly stepping back. And in the beginning, it felt really uncomfortable to say no. Um, So instead I would say things like, let me think about that. Or can I get back to you? Those were kind of my early phrases. And, you know, now I'm pretty good at just saying no, if it doesn't serve (laughs) me, but it, it takes us a while to, 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 warm up to that and get comfortable with that so that's the number one thing i hear around burnout is like if i stop everything's gonna fall apart yeah you know um
0: hi there if you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking but keep starting and stopping and starting again i want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course the sobriety starter kit The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white-knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a -a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time and I would love to see you in the course.
1: So that takes a little courage there's a little little bit of a leap of faith that has to happen there and I always say start small yeah with alcohol, oh my gosh, there are so many things that hold us back I, I think like I said the biggest one is if if I stop drinking um, life's just not gonna be fun yeah it's probably the most common one, right and um and it's okay to feel that way but if you, again, if you can kind of dig into curiosity around that, like what actual evidence do you have of that? Um, chances are, if you're like me, you actually don't have very much evidence on the other side. I always say like, we're often just playing with half the deck, right? Like we have the half of the deck of the cards. That's all about what it's like to drink, but we don't have any of the cards on the other side. So are you really making an informed decision about continuing to drink? If you haven't actually given yourself an opportunity to experience what it's like without it. Yeah. And if, if you can go into an experiment around this with a really open mind and a lot of self compassion that's the other key piece where you just recognize that it's probably going to be hard and not maybe smooth sailing um but you're going to learn from all of these things and that's going to help you at the end of your experiment make a really informed and reasoned decision as to whether you s- still want alcohol in your life or whether you want to keep going like yeah i i never and i think it's really important to say this i did not know that I was never going to drink again ever. <laughs> In fact, I still don't know that. I still don't say that. So what I did was I did the first 30 days. I knew I needed to take a break. I knew I only had half the deck. I wanted to give myself the other half. The 30 days was really hard, but it was also incredibly great. And at the end of the 30 days, I thought, am I ready to try to moderate because moderation was my goal at that time? Am yeah. I ready to moderate? And I thought about all the things that I was putting up at risk that I could lose and played the tape forward all the way and just sort of said, I am not ready yet. And so I said, not yet. And I think it did another 30 days. And then after that 30 days, I went through the same exercise and I said, not yet. And then I said, not yet. And I just not yet myself to 365 days. And by the time I got there, I couldn't figure out why I would drink because I was so happy. My life was so great. And I had done everything for the first time, pretty much without alcohol. And it had gone really well. Yeah. So you know it just became an intuitive decision at that point but you don't need to commit to anything more than a break um and to just like collecting the other half of the cards
0: yeah and yeah. i think that a lot of women do the 30 day break and then go back to drinking and think that they can stop again anytime they want and right. unfortunately find that you know that sober momentum is really precious And it's hard to get and it's hard to start again. So I love what you asked yourself. And my question is, what was it that you
1: thought that you would be giving up um, if you went back to drinking? I mean, this makes me emotional now because it's so clear and obvious to me now. And I remember struggling with this decision at the time, but peace of mind. The peace of mind that I have as a non-drinker will never be available to me if alcohol is part of my life. And I just, I'm so clear on that now. Um, and by peace of mind, that really encompasses like self-love for me. Um, I realized, oh, you know, again, these things were somehow revelatory to me and they should have been so obvious. But was like, oh, I haven't beaten myself up once yes. since I stopped drinking. Yes. Like I'm actually talking to myself. I, I was writing about this the other day. It's like, you know, now I'm actually like, I'm happy to hear what it is I have to say to myself. Like, I'm not afraid of my own thoughts anymore because, um, I'm, I have this peace now that I didn't have before. And of course it wasn't as, um, solid as it is now. Um, it grew over the years, but like the seeds of that were planted in that first 30 day experiment. And I remember thinking to myself, you're potentially putting this at risk. Mm -hmm. And this is something you haven't felt at that. I don't think I had felt that in like 20 years. Yeah. Um yeah. so that was the big for me that was the big one. Um but then of course other things right like energy no hangovers I was getting great sleep for the first time in a long time um probably because I was in perimenopause and this was just making all the things worse you know and so taking it away improved that. So there were lots of other things too but really that sense of peace that I had um and just just not being my own worst enemy for 30 days was just such a relief to me.
0: Yeah and i think that you know i love your approach of just having it be an experiment and i also you know went through something similar i worked with a sober coach it was bell from tired of thinking about drinking and she did a 100 day challenge so setting that goal beyond 30 days and i told everyone in my life i was doing it just a no alcohol challenge for my health for my sleep so I had that accountability that when I got to 30 days, it would, I had told everyone. So, you know, anything that makes it harder to backtrack yes. is helpful. So when I got to a hundred days and same thing as you, except I said, I feel so much better. I want to see what six whole months feels like, yeah. you know, I don't want to go back to the way I was feeling and living when I was drinking. I was curious and kind of excited And then when I got to six months, my next goal was a year. And again, like you, it wasn't until I got to a year that I said, I think I'm done. I think I'm done drinking, which um, had never occurred to me before. But I also do not spend a lot of time. I mean, I'm six and a half years in. I don't spend any time debating forever or thinking about forever. And the reason is, is I'm like, I have no intention of drinking again, but I don't sit here and be like, well, what about if I'm 65 and I'm in this situation, would I drink then? Cause it doesn't do me any good. Right. But I've yeah. ado- adopted the identity as a non-drinker, you know, it would be out of alignment with the person I am right now to pick up a drink.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the truth is I can't I can't even envision a scenario where I would want to have a drink, but I also just don't think it's important to, to say forever on anything. And in fact, I think it actually backfires for most of us in that. If there's no way to succeed at that, you never feel like you can celebrate or succeed. If the goal is to never drink again, then you're always just, there's always just one more day. I mean, you know, I guess when you're dead, you can celebrate, but then you're dead. So that's no fun. Right. So I, I'm, I prefer to just, um, Just kind of do, I always say, like, I just do, and this has become kind of my motto for my life, which is, does it serve me? Yes. What serves me? And this is the best question if you're listening to this podcast and you're feeling overwhelmed and burnt out and you think you're drinking too much about all the things, does it serve me? How does it serve me? And if the answer is it doesn't serve me, that is worth working on. Mm -hmm. That's worth working on. And for me, alcohol doesn't serve me. And I, again, I can't see a scenario where it would, but. Uh, As long as it doesn't serve me, I won't choose it.
0: And one thing you mentioned earlier was what was missing in your life was friendships, adult Mm -hmm. friendships. And I was amazed. I thought that my social life would shrink completely when I stopped drinking and realized that um, instead of that. I made more friends in my first year of not drinking than I had made probably in the previous decade. And a lot of that was friends I met on the alcohol-free path. Um, Honestly, online was how I met some of them. And then they became in-person, real-life friends, but also sort of considering and pursuing friendships with people who didn't drink a lot or didn't drink in my in my normal life, who I had never really spent a lot of time with before. And then trying new activities, like joining the morning workout group and actually investing in those friendships. Or, you know, I did, um, you know, a, a mindful triathlon where you did, you know, running a 5k and meditation and dance and yoga and inviting people to that. Who I wouldn't normally invite um, or, you know, going to a yoga retreat. Like all of these things were activities I'd never done when I was drinking, which brought me in contact with new friends. And I kept, you know, I would say I kept 90% of my of my previous
1: friends. Um, but it was just a very small group once you're an adult. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just it. I mean, it was just the natural process of attrition for me, I think, over time that led to that place. And I just think that probably what happened is the alcohol just distracted me from that. Um, I, don't, I don't know how connected the alcohol was to any of it. Um, but I know that when I took alcohol away, it became painfully obvious to me that I didn't have as many close, important friendships as I wanted and needed. and so I started working on that. And same as you, I have met so many people through, um, being alcohol-free and obviously I'm in that, that circle like you are, um, because I'm a coach and, you know, I meet, I meet all kinds of people all the time, um, in this, in this arena, um, and most of my existing friendships didn't change. A couple of them did, but most of them didn't. And, um, you know, I think it's just a matter of like, with like with everything else, you have to stay mindful around it. It's easy to just kind of fall into entropy and just let it just, you know, let things kind of devolve. And that's what happened to me with my social life. I always say my kids were the platinum sponsors of my social life for like 15 years. And then they, they kind of, you know, went on their own way. And I was like, oh, hold on now. Yeah who's making this happen Yeah, (laughs) because they're not here anymore. So it just required a little bit of intentionality around that. And um, I've made some really pretty incredible friends in the last few years. And I I also believe, I don't know how you feel about this, but I just think my ability to connect in a meaningful way with people is so much richer as a result of not drinking. Yes. I'm, I'm just way more present with everybody. And the friendships that I have are just so much they just feel so much richer and deeper to me than they did when I was drinking. Yeah, I
0: completely agree. And I also think that, you know, when I was drinking, I didn't, you know, I was, um, you know, I felt like I had this secret to hide, you know, because I was so worried about my drinking that I never wanted anyone to look too closely at me. And I wanted everyone to think that my life was good and so i kept things fairly surface and didn't talk about a lot of the things that actually kind of worried me because um because i thought so many of them were related to my drinking and then once i stopped drinking you know i'm a big fan of like you only tell people as much as serves you and you don't owe your story to anyone and you can kind of tell the people who are genuinely interested versus maybe wanting some gossip. Right. Um, but I realized that when I when I mentioned I'd stop drinking, when I mentioned even that it was related to wanting to feel less anxiety, and it wasn't serving me or waking up at 3am, I found people kind of felt comfortable confiding in me that their life also wasn't perfect. And it doesn't have to be alcohol, it can be their marriage or struggles with kids or work or whatever. But we just We just had way more honest conversations, which brought us closer. Yeah, I totally agree.
1: I'm such a fan of vulnerability. It's crazy. And I was the opposite when I was still drinking. If you told me when I was still drinking that I'd have a podcast and I would be doing this kind of thing, talking to people on podcasts and telling my story and writing, whatever this thing is I'm writing, I would have said, forget it. But um, that's one of the real gifts of becoming alcohol-free for me is just this ability to um, First of all, I think see myself through the lens that probably most other people see me through, which was not the lens I saw myself through for so long. You know, when you take that veil of alcohol away, you can kind of see yourself clearly. So I think there's that, um, but just also that the confidence that comes with it. Yeah,
0: I completely agree. Um, and I think that we sell ourselves short so much, um, meaning we see so many more flaws in ourselves that that other people don't see. One of the things I love to do with my clients um, that was actually suggested to me by Libby Nelson, who I did a podcast on, she's a coach on, you know, Brene Brown's work in midlife, Um, But she had me do early on this thing called the essence project, where you just very casually text a whole bunch of people like I did, like 20 people in my life from work. And my, I was we asked my mother and sister, and I got to tell you, I was terrified to hear what they would say. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, my friends and my husband and my kids and all these people and just said, hey, I'm doing a, a project for, you know, whatever, a class coaching, whatever it is. And would you just quickly, don't think about it too much. Text me back three words that you think of when you think of me or that describe me. And the very cool thing was that I still have it on my, on my, um, wall, um, you know, that people, people wrote back, but they were so consistent and they weren't the things that I thought that people would say, even if they were being complimentary about my my strengths. And I was shocked how many um, even acquaintances had that but also the people who knew me really well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I keep it up because I truly believe there's this kind of quote that says, if you could see yourself just for a day, you'd see yourself how everyone else sees you and my god, you're fucking beautiful.
1: Yes, I love that so much. I think we get so, especially really busy women, and that's really who this podcast is for like burnt out, overwhelmed, busy women equate our worth with what we do, and our productivity becomes our currency. And we start to see ourselves as what we do. So, so often when I ask my clients, like, who are you? The answer is, oh, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a mother, I'm a teacher, I'm a wife, you know. Um, And so I love that idea because what we are not very, it's not easy for us to do. We all know how to naturally do this. It's just been a long time since we've done it, I think, is that we're just not great at being. You know, yeah. and so I love that question because I think what that does is help you figure out how you want to be. And I don't know about you, but we do. I often do a coaching exercise with clients um, around fulfillment, where we talk about you know at the end of your life, if people are sort of talking about what you've accomplished and who you were, what do you want them to say? Um, and in the beginning, it's it's a really hard exercise for a lot of busy women, and they'll they'll you know they'll start writing a list of accomplishments, like actual <laughs> you know things that they've accomplished or and. Um, and it really forces them to start to think about like, what is it? Who is it I really want to be? Um, and this is the beauty of moving into menopause. I think <laughs> is that this all becomes easier. Yeah, because it's like everything. Just like I said, it's like we can use the word flatline, which sounds really negative, but it's more just like a leveling out that happens, and just a confidence and a surety and a. I think, you know, a lot of the complexities start to fall away because we're not actively parenting like we were maybe, or, um, in the throes of perimenopause, everything just feels a little bit simpler and more level. Um, and for me anyway, it became so much clearer to me along with, I should say, removing alcohol. It became so much easier for me to start to articulate who it was. I want to be, um, you know, for the next 40 years or however long I have left on the planet.
0: Yeah, I love that in terms of like thinking about what you want, people to say about you or what you truly care about. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I like about the essence project too is like you can see when people reflect back to you is that actually who you want to be. Yes. You know, I mean that's another thing. And I was mm-hmm. sort of shocked that um you know these are work colleagues, people I work with, um you know and And I even asked my boss and stuff like that. And, you know, I thought of myself as one of my, one of my biggest strengths that they would probably say, when you think of me, what are you going to do was like efficient and organized. And those words only came up once out of like 34 words. All the other ones were like real and kind and caring and joyful. And I was like, wow,
1: like my boss thinks that like, that's pretty Awesome. Um, this is other- t- directly tied into saying no, by the way, because you think everybody loves you because of all the things you do for them. Yes. They don't. That is not why the people in your life love you. They love you because of who you are. So the sky won't fall if you say no and stop doing as much. In oh fact, gosh, it'll probably just get a whole lot better. All right. I love that. So everyone
0: listening to this, you know, just do the essence project. Just be like, oh, I heard something interesting on a podcast you know, text like 20 people and be like, you know, just tell me what you think when you think of me immediately, like what characteristics, and then you can look at it and say, is that how I see myself? Is that in alignment with who I want to be? And like, if not, I can shift it. But I bet you will be very surprised in a positive way what comes back. Like, like Wendy said, it's probably not you know your productivity or whatever it is and like put that front and center put that somewhere where you'll remember it i did this project 3 years ago and i still hold on to it so um so definitely do that um the other thing i think i'll do is like put M and friends, favorite menopause greeting cards in the, in the images, just because I love it. But I found another one and it said, you know, welcome to menopause. On one hand, there's brain fog and headaches and insomnia and whatever happened to my knees. On the other hand, there's a breathtaking power of truly not giving a shit what anyone thinks anymore. Hallelujah
1: right hallelujah that's what i say all the time i think all of that my again my naturopathic friend sarah bailey and i talk about this a lot on our podcast but the the fact that that estrogen that we have it's a nurturing hormone it's what keeps us from eating our young right and it's pumping through our 30s and And it's, it's what drives us to take care of everybody and everything else. And I think that what happens in menopause is that that starts to come back home and you start to, you start to actually start taking care of yourself in a really meaningful way and life just gets really good. So if you're terrified, I was terrified too. It's actually really pretty great on the other side. Awesome. Well, I
0: think that is a great place to end this. Tell us how people can listen to your podcast, get in touch with you, learn about the work you do, because this has been one of my favorite conversations. So I'm sure people are
1: going to want to follow up. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you. Um, well, you can find me on my website, which is wendymccallum.com. And my podcast is called Bite Sized Balance, and you can find it on iTunes or Spotify or Google Pod- Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts, really awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thanks, Casey. Thank you for
0: listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit Coaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.
1: It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves.